Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. This is our attempt to speak the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. We believe every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. And this podcast is our experiment to publicly test that belief. Let's jump in. Well, welcome everyone to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Today is my last week with my buddy Taylor Walling for a little while. Hopefully, not the last time though. On yeah, the this is, this has been fun. Thanks it for, has been fun. Thanks for having me on. Oh, dude, absolutely. And so, uh, two weeks ago, we uh, talked with you about your story and your journey with the Bible, and um, how that's that grew from eating dirt in a rainstorm all the way to showing Christ in all Scripture. Uh, yeah. If you don't understand that reference, go back and listen to Taylor's story. Uh, and then uh, last week we switched chairs. Yes. And yes. You interviewed me. Yep. Which we was went a from, lot of fun. We went from uh, Mardell's and stealing an eraser to starting a nonprofit organization to scre- speech to speak speak speech to speech to gospel. gospel. Spreken the gospel in all of scripture. Yeah. So it was along fun with a guy named Schleiermacher. Oh, yeah. No, we didn't. He was not doing that. No. Schleiermacher. All right. Anyway. It's a liar mocker. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway. Wow. False start. <laughs> and so this week then, which you dastardly teed up at the end of, of last week's episode. Yes. Uh, I was going through th- at least the th- first three reasons I could think of for why we must see Jesus in all of Scripture. The first reason I gave was that if we don't, we won't be reading the Bible aright. Yep. The second one was the only way to be transformed while we read the Bible is to see Jesus. And then I was about to make a third point <laughs> about how um, if we don't see Jesus in all of Scripture, we will default to um, our innate tendency to read the Bible legalistically. Right. And the reason that I stopped you, uh-huh. uh, like I even just did right now, yeah, was... What's the deal, man? Uh, Let wh- me go. <laughs> <laughs> was because... Th- this last point has huge implications mm. for uh, for how every single person who is a follower of Jesus uh, reads the Bible, um, especially as uh, as part of how Jesus leads us into His way of life and mm-hmm. His life in the kingdom. Um, and and there's there's a claim you're making in it about uh, about our own kind of hearts and how we're bent towards. Uh, what you're calling legalism. Just just expound on that a little bit. Yeah. And I, we were kind of pressed for time at the end. I wanted to give some space for that. Sure. So the, the idea that the default inclination of the human heart skews towards legalism both needs some unpacking and some explaining, some proving, I think. So to unpack it a little bit, what I mean by that is that without retraining uh, through the Holy Spirit, there is a default inclination of your heart, meaning there is um, a uh, the, the automatic way you will operate in this world is skewed one specific way, and that way is towards legalism. And I would I, another way, another term that I like to use instead of legalism is self salvation. Okay, and why why do you find that more helpful? Just because it's 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 more ex- explanatory than than uh than legalism legalism also has like a lot of baggage on on it right. uh you know it's also it's been used like accused ah oh, you legalist right it's you a very know. wagging finger yeah 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 self-salvation both is a, is a it can be a decent noun but also explains itself pretty well so but so the so what i'm saying in, the, in that sentence is that that uh if we are not 
seeing Jesus in Scripture, we will default to seeing how we can how how the Scripture is teaching us to save ourselves. And, and so let me unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So if we go back to Genesis, uh, we will remember that there are two trees in Genesis. There is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there's the tree of life. And the uh, the the idea was if Adam and Eve were, were listened to the voice of God, that they were just to tend the garden, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, then they would be allowed to go to the tree of life and live with God forever. Um, but instead of trusting God for salvation and for um, this perfect paradise that they were in, they instead thought that there was additional knowledge that they could uh, achieve at this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, they wanted to know right and wrong for themselves. They wanted to define it for themselves. They wanted to be able to contribute to the relationship with God. Uh, and I think this is part of the story that uh, often goes overlooked um, of like the the motives that Eve might have had right. when going to the tree. And I was able to unpack this a lot more in my last book, Rewire Your Heart. Yeah. Uh, so if you're like, if you leave your confused, that's, go, a, go, that's a helpful yeah, place. That's a to helpful go. place to go. Um, and so, but 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 what I think is helpful to talk about is is that Eve was going there perhaps for some more innocuous reasons than we often accuse her of. We often think that she was either one of two things. Either she was like. Uh, it says keep off the grass and I'm like forget you I'm gonna walk on the grass just because the keep off the grass sign was there like it's kind of like well the rule was there just so it could be broken and uh, you know she, she was just being rebellious I don't see that in the text it doesn't seem like that was her like emotion the other thing that we see uh, people talk about when they read the story of Eve is like it seems like she was helpless towards it uh, and I think in Rewire, Rewire Your Heart, I put it like she was like uh, Mowgli in the Jungle Book. You know, whenever uh, Ka the snake would right. hypnotize him and yeah. he would just kind of walk, you know, like like a, like a cartoon being wafted by the smell of an apple pie to a windowsill. Right, right. And it was just like she couldn't help it. The tempter was there yeah. and there was nothing she could do. Put in the trance. And yeah, tra just and I just don't see either. I see a debate that had probably been going on for a long time. We don't know why Eve was at the tree to begin with. She sought it out. She was there. She was having a theological debate with a spiritual being known as uh, as Satan, you know? And it's like, what's happening here, right. you know? And so um, I think what was happening was she knew that there was this relationship she had with God, that if she kept God's commands in the garden, she would get to stay there and be with him. And I, I have to assume she wanted to make God happy. Like, I think a lot of us do. We want God and us to be okay. We want God to be proud of us, right. you know? And uh, she really didn't want to not make, you know, make God mad. She didn't want to do the wrong thing. And so isn't it quite obvious or possible that she went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not because God told her not to and she was trying to break it, but because she wanted what it offered. She wanted what it offered, which was the knowledge of good and evil. She wanted yeah. to know right and wrong. This way I'll do the good stuff. This way I can do more of the good stuff that God wants and stay away from the bad stuff he doesn't. Okay. And I, uh, the reason I also think we can make that point pretty well is because um, rabbis uh, that interpreted the Old Testament throughout time would refer to the Torah, the law of God, as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like, it served the same purpose. I didn't know this that. Is the, the Torah is the new tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it serves the same purpose. It, 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 it shows us basically that, like, the, what, the, what does the knowledge lead to? What does all this knowledge of good and evil lead to? It leads us, it, we find out in the New Testament, it leads us to realize that we can't do it all, and we need someone to do it for us. Okay. 
But instead, it became a new uh, temptation for the Jewish people that they, they thought that it was all up to them to uphold and to keep perfectly, and they couldn't, and it became cr- a crushing weight for them that they needed to escape. Right. And so I just think, like, if we could see some kind of paradigm of what sin is in Eve at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think we could see that there is something innate in the sin of the human heart that tries to get the good apart from God, that tries to earn something that God has already offered for free. And so that's what self-salvation is, is it's trying to do something that God's already done. It's trying to win something that God's already won. Like, that's what self-salvation is. So, it, I mean, would it be a fair summary to then say the, uh, that if we're, if we're not seeing Jesus in all of Scripture, then we will default to seeing ourself in all of Scripture. Correct. And yep. now these are the things I need to do. Right. These are the ways I need to be. Not unlike when uh, Jesus is talking to the crowd in John 6, mm-hmm. and, John, and, the, and the people say to him, well, what should we do? We want to we want to get in on the works of God. Yep. And and Jesus's response is <laughs> the first work, the the primary thing God wants is believe in the one he sent. Right. Okay. Yep, just believe. Right. Yeah, and so uh I think what happens then whenever we look at a command of scripture, right? Uh if we look at the law and we talked me and Seth talked about this whenever we we went through the law is uh we preeminently see uh, what we must do. First and foremost, we see what we must do when we look at a law. And what we need to see is who God is when yeah. we look at a law. And it's like, do not lie. Well, why? Well, that's consistent with the character of God. It's because God's not a liar. Right. And so uh, like, we, we have to start there and see who is Jesus and who is God in this first. Yeah. And then let's get to the moral imperative. Yeah, my language in our first episode was looking going first for revelation rather mm-hmm. than application. Yes. Um, yeah, okay. So, so if... If that's the case, okay. one of the challenges then is even hearing you explain why you think it's important, I felt like part of me was listening and going, wow, okay, do you have to have a seminary degree to be able to then back up and go, well, we have to get back to Eve and what the rabbis taught and all these things <laughs> right. so that now, now, even though you said it wasn't secret knowledge, it sure sounds, it sure like, sounds it. like it. Right. So, so how, how does this become for followers of Jesus today? more accessible mm-hmm. um and even though it's going to take some responsibility with the scriptures yes how how can i mean it, it it can get i remember having initial discussions with you as we were going on this journey and you were the one with the bible degree and i was not and feeling intimidated sure yep. to go okay well i don't i'm now i'm wondering if i can you know am i going to do this right because mm-hmm. uh i even remember um maybe we can jump jump to this as, as an example I remember listening uh, in the the first book that you uh, and Seth worked through in Exodus. Exodus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and there was uh, there was a battle. Was this Exodus uh, seventeen? Oh, oh, with Abimelech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, seventeen. Yeah. Okay. So I just remember you you talking about how in the text uh, you're working through the fact that um, that Moses sends out Joshua and some men and Moses or the Amalekites. Amalekites. The Amalekites. He he holds up. His uh, the staff and his hands. He holds up both his hands. Right. And when he's holding his hands up, like they're like, winning the battle. They're winning the battle. Yep. And he they and then uh, Aaron and uh, oh, yeah, and, and her and when it, well, they when set they set like a rock for right. Moses to sit on because he's getting tired. Because when his hands drop, they lose the battle. Yeah. So then they hold up both of his arms. Right. For him. And uh, and then the text says Joshua won. You know, or the, yeah, the, Moses won. Yeah, the, um, the battle was won whenever. Right. Whenever. Joshua was the one leading the battle. Oh sure. Right, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. right, right. right. Joshua so, fought. Yeah. So so. 
and then I remember both of you going as you were like, okay, so how do we see the, the how do we see Jesus in this? And I think I can't remember if it was you or Seth who was like, well, there's I know the, how not to see yeah, it here, which, <laughs> which is which is like the which, as soon as you you joked about this, I heard like the classic preacher turn, which was like, you know, doesn't that help us see our our uh, our leader who he didn't have somebody to hold up his arms for us. But there were nails holding his arms up, <laughs> and, and, and and when he was when his arms were held out on the cross, the battle was the won. battle was won. That's right. And yeah, if, yeah, it, and if right, those right. arms were never lifted up, yeah. the battle would always be okay, lost. Okay, so yeah. so you guys you guys mentioned that, and then yep. and then laughed about it, and we're like, all right, let's get to a real gospel turn. <laughs> but you didn't explain why? at all why. So yeah, I sure. I in the moment I was like, okay. I feel a little bit looked down on and a little bit like if I found any of that devotionally helpful or appreciated that now I'm just a dumb Christian. So like <laughs> so help help some of us or and if and if and if no one else help me help me understand why that is um maybe you could say uh, a, a lazy or a not a textually faithful sure. or whatever. Help me understand why you're like no that's that's not the way to go. Right. Okay, sure. Uh let me back up and, and kind of, I want to touch on something you said earlier, okay. which I think is really helpful, where it's like, okay, so there's this huge trap in Bible reading, right. where if I, if I don't see Jesus correctly, I'm going to be a legalist and try to save myself and <laughs> yeah. everything's ruined. Right. Uh, but I don't have a Bible degree. And I don't right. know about the rabbis. So now I'm reading it a wrong. I'm not a right. I'm reading it a wrong. I am not, wrong. I am not, not being, being transformed. transformed. And I'm a legalist. <laughs> Great. So this is fun. Wow. Okay. Right. And so uh, I would say I think I I, I think it can sound like um, you have to have all this Bible training to do these things. Yeah. But that's just because you're listening to a Bible trained person do these things. It would sound different if. It was you talking. You're not you. I'm talking like to a normal listener, yeah. but like it's just going to sound different based on who's doing it. You know, right? But that doesn't make it less true. Absolutely, I got you. And, and what I would want to point out here is is biblical training will never help you see and savor Jesus in the New Testament or in the Old Testament or anywhere in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> the only thing that will do that is if you remember back to our first interview with you two weeks ago, it, whenever you talked about the Road to Emmaus story. It was the fact that Jesus had to open their eyes. Yeah, it was the Holy Spirit opening their mind to see Jesus in all of Scripture, taking the veil away. That's right. Right. And so, what we're talking about here is not an academic barrier. What we're talking about here is a spiritual barrier. That's a good reminder. And so, we need to come to our text, both both the trained and the untrained, and we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open my eyes, I might see wonderful things in your word. Yeah. You know, Psalm 119, verse 18. And so that's something we have to do. And I think people like me, who spend every day studying the Bible, need to strive to be more humble and communicate in a better way that helps people know that, like, look, the only way we're doing this is because of the Holy Spirit's grace to us. And then people who want to disqualify themselves from biblical study uh, need to know they have the best resource in the world, Jesus himself there, to walk down the road to Emmaus with you and open the Bible for you. That's good. And then, but also, like, be biblically responsible. Like, read your Bible. Like, I, the best the best way to learn to read your Bible is to read your Bible. Um, I'm going to go on one quick tangent, and then we'll get back to the Amalekites. I'll allow it. Okay. So there is a principle in biblical interpretation known as the hermeneutical spiral. Okay, so hermeneutics is just the, the question, the study of how do we apply what the Bible says? So it's applying what the Bible says. I got you. Okay, so what does the Bible mean to me today? That's the hermeneutical question, okay? Yeah. The hermeneutical spiral, what that means is we let the Bible 
um, correct itself and and build its own guardrails. And so what what you might say is like, I think this text means X, right? But then somewhere else in the Bible, it says that God is never X, right? And so it says, okay, it can't be that. Is it Y? Oh, it says elsewhere in the Bible that God is Y. Oh, great. But it's never Y minus A. You know, it's so anyway, okay, it starts okay. to tighten down. So it forms this spiral to where the best way to learn to read your Bible is to read more of your Bible. And because you don't need a commentary to tell you what's right and wrong. Yeah. You need God to tell you what's right and wrong. Okay, so I've I've heard so I've never heard hermeneutical spiral. Yeah, until why would today. you? That but, would be the worst but, thing to hear. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad that's not what my youth minister said. But but what I did hear that's like a, a simpler version of what you just said, which is just um, allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Yep. Allow, yeah, allow that the was, Bible to interpret itself. Yes, and yep. that was kind of that that was one of the things that was shared to me even growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yet you're right. That implies that you've read more of the Bible to help interpret exactly. Itself. So that's right. yeah. That's if you want to understand Matthew, read the Torah. Yeah. Like you're not going to get Matthew until you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. For sure. There's he quotes it all the time. Exactly. And anyway, so I just wanted to like. You, you laid out a bunch in the lead up to Exodus 17 that I wanted to address. Okay. So now we're here. Why did we laugh at that interpretation? <laughs> and maybe why shouldn't we have laughed and been more kind? Uh, I'll just repent and say <laughs> we should have been more pastoral. Uh, but uh, here's why it is a laughable interpretation. Okay. And why it's just let's let's do better. And I don't even think the words lazy are the right okay. words because I think that's yeah. creative. <laughs> you know, that's pretty creative. I just think there are some things that we need to do as people who sit under the authority of Scripture that help us treat the Bible the way it's supposed to be treated. Okay. And I think that's something that we need to understand when we approach the text, is we are sitting under it as students. And so the Bible's not something like Plato that we come to, and it has all the colors, and we get to make with it whatever we want. That's not what we do in biblical interpretation. What we do in biblical interpretation is we sit under it and let it teach us. And then it is what takes us on a journey uh, through itself. Okay. And, and so so here's one of the things that I want to point out yeah. of why that's that's not a good way to interpret Exodus 17 and the defeat of the Amalekites is that what the first question we have to ask is what is the significance what is being communicated by the author of Exodus to the people to whom it was written in this story of Moses holding up his hands and the victory being won? Is it, is it, is, is, is it really focused in on the fact that uh, his arms were stretched out like a cross? Like, is it that picture of that being, being his arms lifted up? Is, is it the fact that Moses' arms were lifted up? Is that the real reason that they won? No. Why were they winning? Well, his arms being lifted up is a sign of prayer. He was interceding for the people. And while he interceded and held up the staff, the people were winning. Why? Well, because it was God's battle. God was the one who was winning. And he wanted to show them. I mean, think about it. They're about to go into Canaan in like a year's time. And he wanted to show them something very important about their military strategy, that it had nothing to do with their military prowess or their strength. It had all to do with God. And so they wanted to give a physical symbol of if God's not on your side, if you are not coming to him first and and going to his throne asking for his help, you're going to lose. Right. And they couldn't have gotten that message in this first battle 
if it was just like, hey, I'm with you, go do it, which is what happens a lot of the rest of the time. Right. Uh, this first one, because this is the first big military battle they go up against after leaving Egypt, they needed a physical symbol of, man, when, when Moses' arms are up and he's reaching up to heaven, we win. Right. When they go down and God's not on our side anymore, we lose. I get it. Like, because we're all dumb and we really need to know what's the deal. Right. And so the real image here that's happening and what the text is trying to communicate is that if God is on our side, we win. You know, like that's, that's, that's the, that's the purpose that we win our battles when God's on our side. Okay. And we need an intercessor to go before him in order for us to win that battle. And so a correct gospel turn would be to say, well, then who's that intercessor who goes between us and God so that the battle is won? Well, it's Jesus. Right. Well, how did he intercede? On the cross. Oh, his, his arms happened see, to be stretched out. That's yeah, the piece but, for me that was like... But it's like, that's a subsequent, like, that's not the purpose of the text. And so I think what I think the reason why I would skip that right. in a sermon or a devotional, yeah. or, or, or even in your own personal reflection, the reason I would skip that is because it introduces something into biblical, biblical interpretation that will slowly eat away at your own or the people who are listening to use trust trustworthiness in um, responsible allegory, like responsible biblical, like Jesus uh, turns. Okay, so what? Un, un, unpack what that what's what you think is being introduced. What's going on? Right, there? and so if we if we can agree on the premise that um, the main point of the text is not Moses's hands, yeah, and totally them being get stretched that. out. So part of what I'm hearing then, just to kind of like synthesize what you're what you're saying, I'm hearing a gospel turn should be. You know, it should be built upon the main point of that story. Exactly text, right. In its original context. Exactly right. So even though the the idea of outstretched hands through which our victory is won mm -hmm. in our mediator, even though those things are the same, that's that's still not the main point from a outstretched hands. It's like it's taking one small detail and turning it into a little yeah. comparison. Is that it, like, it, that's part of it? The, I think the other side of it is that you would be hard-pressed to find a New Testament reference to the outstretched arms of Jesus or to oh, gotcha. the arms of Jesus being lifted up. Now, if there was a text in the Gospels that quoted some of this language from, you know, the, the book of, uh, of Exodus right. and, and they're like really focused on the arms of Jesus— uh, okay. Right, because Jesus didn't say, you know, if my arms be lifted right. up, I will draw. No, he... Yeah. And it's like, I think what it also does is it belittles the gospel to, like, some magic act where his arms are lifted up. It's like, no, he bore the wrath of God, and the intercession was way more costly than tired arms. Mm. Like, it's like, we don't need some, like, cool... You know, you and I, we have a joke. You know, we, uh -oh. we have a little joke <laughs> that, yes, we that do. no one needs to know about, but I'm going to put it on <laughs> public radio now. Uh, is like any time that we feel like we're being a little too showy or like yes. uh, like we want to do like a, a fantastic it's Jesus turn. It's a really turn. cool Jesus turn. We, we will joke and say, we can say it together. <laughs> Voila, it's a Jesus. <laughs> that is so embarrassing. It's very to embarrassing. But that's kind of what's happening here is like, I feel like it, it does more to draw attention to the creative uh, mind of the preacher presenting this than it does to draw us to worship Jesus, which is the other litmus test for good and bad allegory, where if you go, oh, that was clever, that's cool, that's bad allegory. I gotcha. If you go, oh, Jesus is so good, that's good allegory, usually. Like, that's not the only test, but right. it's a helpful one. Yeah. Because when you go, his arms were lifted up, you're like, ooh, that was dope. <laughs> You don't go, I understand the atonement better, or I understand intercession better. Right. 
then that's not good it, allegory. It, it's more it's more wordplay. It's wordplay. Although to be to be fair, there are times where I've listened to some great gospel centered preachers who will make a a turn and and interpret part of the text from a gospel centered standpoint and show me Jesus, and I'm doing both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Just because partly I'm a I'm a preacher, so I'm I'm going wow, I, that's amazing that that's there. Right. But also, it's incredible to see and appreciate Jesus again. So all yeah. that to say... I don't that, think we have to pit craft against right. <laughs> theological responsibility. Right, right, right. Uh, I'm not saying, like, you can't say things in a cool way. I'm a poet. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. like, but uh, it, it does seem to be, like, some gospel turns are done only for their ingenuity. For their rhetorical device. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, does that somewhat suffice? In yeah, an no, that, that, that helps um, for sure. I just think... Uh, Helping to understand, so if if I'm reading by myself mm-hmm. and I'm working through and I'm trying to go, okay, this is a confusing passage. Um, how how do I work through the, I mean, you know, the uh, original meaning? If oh, it's right. super weird to me, like for instance, let's do this um, as another like a little little experiment. Okay, um, if you're if you're up for it, I'm, I'm gonna, up for I'm it. gonna throw something at you um, that that uh, a lot of people, especially growing up, I, both of us growing up as. Uh, uh, pastor's kids, like this was a passage that got joked about that was super weird and random. I'm talking about the end of Second Kings two with, oh, no. with Elisha, um, <laughs> who who is uh, mocked and jeered <coughs> by a group of uh, a, a group of of young men. Uh, mm. The text uh, the ESV calls them boys. Right. Um, and so I'm just gonna read read this, and I want to wrestle with like one. Uh, okay, help me with the original meaning. Sure. Help us, but also like, all right, how do you how do you see uh, Jesus in this? Here we go. So. Uh, I'm going to start uh, about uh, inside a little bit of Second uh, Kings 2, a little bit into 23. As Elisha was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. I love that they put it twice. Verse 24. It's yeah, good. <laughs> he turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys and he went on to Mount Carmel and from there and returned to Samaria. Some good <laughs> geographical <laughs> Just details. Just FYI, if you, if you want to you have, uh, this is an old reference, if you want to have MapQuested where this happened, you can, you can, just, uh, you can just find it right Map over there. MapQuest. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, all right, responsible, gospel-centered interpretation of... So this seems like the opposite of what we just wrestled with, where it's like uh, there's an obvious glaring, like irresponsible version to get to Jesus right. with the arms stretched out. Now it's like, I don't even know how to read this text. Yeah. So are we asking a different question now? We're kind of shifting gears to like, okay, I see how to do a little bit more of the Jesus turn when it comes to texts that have like a clear meaning. So right. it's like, okay, I, I definitely see when the victory, the victory's won because God was on their side and they needed an intercessor. I can put all that together into what Jesus does for us. I kind of right. get that. Okay. But now it's like, wh- why is this even in the Bible? Exactly. Let like, alone, how, how is this showing me the glory of the gospel? <laughs> how do I savor Jesus here? Okay. Well, let's, let's look at it. So um, first off, who's Elisha, right? So Elisha is the spiritual successor um, to Elijah, who went before him. And Elijah was one of the first mighty prophets of God, um, which was a really special role in um, the the life of the people of Israel. Um, the people of Israel were wayward, uh, as they always are, as we always are, and the prophets, what they, they were, they were almost like God's presence 
among them. Uh, they would correct them, rebuke them, but also like show God's mercy to them by performing miracles and healing people and raising people from the dead and like giving people food when they needed it. Like yeah. these are definitely, and there's lots of ways to see Jesus in that. In right. There was a reason ministry. Jesus was called and, and even considered a prophet. A prophet, right. Because he looked a lot like Elijah yeah. and people even thought he was Elijah. Right. Um, but now there's this Elisha who's here and he just took the literally the mantle from Elijah and is now the prophet of Yahweh, the representative of Yahweh to the people of Israel. And he 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 comes into this town and um, people are immediately disrespecting his authority as the new Elijah. Now, why? There's multiple reasons. Maybe they liked Elijah more and they don't like this new guy. Like, you know, maybe the bald head is a reference to his age and, you know, you're too old, you know, or okay. maybe he has no glory, you know, because it's like, oh, you, you you don't even have hair. You know, we, we still make fun of bald people today. So that's not too hard to figure out. Yeah. No offense, you know, to, you know, bald people. But uh, they, you know, maybe it's like maybe they're making fun of his glory, that he had no glory in his in his head, you know. <laughs> so like the reason, but regardless, the point is they are making fun of a prophet of God. And so they're not necessarily rejecting Elisha or making fun of Elisha. They are rejecting Yahweh and his rule and reign and presence among them. And um, this is this is supposed to show us the extreme depths of depravity that the people of God have gotten to, where a prophet comes to them and they just publicly rebuke him and make fun of him and tell him to leave and make fun of his like appearance, his countenance, his age, his qualification. And they're, they're just, they do not want to be under God's rule and reign. And so Elisha calls a curse down on them in the name of Yahweh. Right. Uh, to show, one, he is the new prophet. And two, that God will not be slandered among his people. That he and those that he anoints with his spirit and responsibility and mantle and leadership should be respected. Uh, because he is their, his, he is Yahweh's mouthpiece to the people of Israel. And so uh, he calls down this curse on them, which should show us something very clear, that when we reject God and his appointed leaders, a curse comes down upon us, and it's at the cost of our lives. And so in this case, it's something very visceral. Uh, it's two bears, you know, <laughs> I think, which again, it's like, it seems random. Uh, I don't know a lot about the geography of this place. Maybe right. bears were a thing. You know, maybe they were in the, the area. But regardless, the curse is what's important, not necessarily how it came about. Okay. Uh, it's the fact that they died because of it. Right. And so, like, even even as you're saying that, I'm like, okay, here's, if I'm, I'm wrestling with, like, if I'm trying to see Jesus in this, part of me is thinking about, all right, so they, new, new prophet comes into town, is disrespected, um, and, and, like, this prophet calls down a curse. Whereas, like, I'm like, okay, how do I see Jesus in that if Jesus is the one where, like, his disciples, when they're trying to go through Samaria, and the village rejects the hospitality to, to house Jesus, and mm -hmm. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are like, should we call down fire from heaven? Like, exactly right. let's call down a curse. Let's do it like the old days. And they don't. Mm -hmm. So how, like, like, I guess I'm just trying to wrestle with, like, but, how... But, but doesn't Jesus elsewhere, uh, whenever he's rejected in certain towns, he says, woe to you, it will... Siren... Uh, Tyre and Sidon or something like that, those two cities. And he oh, says, yeah. it will be better for for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you on the day of visitation because he calls down a curse on them. He says, your whole town's going to be destroyed because you rejected the prophet of God. And so, like, Jesus does still do this. But then we can look at the gospel, 
right? And we can see that um, we've all rejected God. We've rejected his messengers. We've rejected his word, which is his consummate prophet to us, the living word of God, right? Yeah. The full counsel of God. We reject it. We disobey it. We break it. Uh, the, the law of Moses we break. Uh, and then we re- like the world rejected Jesus and put him to death. Uh, and yet, um, when Jesus called down a curse um, on those who disbelieved, uh, he he took the bears himself. In a right. sense, he was mauled. He was he was the one who took the curse, so that those who were yelling at him, jeering at him at the moment of his death, the Roman soldiers, he instead prayed for their forgiveness. And so you have this in Jesus. You have this picture of the new Elisha who by no means clears the guilty, to quote Exodus, right? right? Uh, but calls down a curse on those who disregard him and disrespect him and, um, and reject him, like he did in Tyre and Sidon. Yeah. But also takes the curse for us. And so it asks the question that the boys should be asking, you know, we should ask the boys here, and the rest of Bethel should have been asking is, so what will you do? Will you reject the prophet of God? Or will you accept him? Will you come under his leadership as the one to whom God has appointed? Or will you say, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. Hmm. And how we respond to Jesus will dictate what happens to us. We will either come under a curse or we will come under the blessing because Jesus took our curse. Yeah. And so there's definitely ways to, to yeah. see Jesus in this text. But you have to do one thing first, right? You have to walk through the text. Right. And, and say, wrestle with what's, what's, what's there. happening. Yeah. 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 I've also, you know, it's interesting. I've also heard theories that uh, the specifically the Baldy could have been a, a kind of a kind of threat about scalping. Oh, uh, right. That that it, yeah. That and uh, anyway, just yeah. Just, with weird texts, the the <laughs> commentators just like I mean, there's there's go, as many commentaries exist, or as many as opinions that exist. Right. And right, so they right. they go right. They go crazy. And like the ages of the boys are all debated. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. The significance of which town he's coming into and which towns he's going right. to have so, significance. Okay. So help us with that. So when when there's texts like this or even there's other texts that aren't necessarily as controversial mm-hmm. but are just uh, has have a, a variety of theories around them um what 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 advice would you give mm-hmm. for somebody who's like i've looked up a couple articles about this i heard three different ideas right how do i wade through this and get past when the original meaning is uh there's a maybe a bigger point that I can kind of walk away with, but there's some bunch of other stuff there that's weird. Right. Like, what advice would you give to somebody yeah. who's working through it and trying to, you know, devotionally have you know, like find something yeah. meaningful? I would there. say, like, most often, and this is not, there are exceptions to the rule, but most often, this text included, um, the main point of the text doesn't is isn't changed by the details. Okay. Of like, how old were the kids? What did the threat mean? Like, right, we got to a responsible understanding of the text and responsible um, fulfillment in Christ without necessarily figuring out those minor details. And there's something else we need to look here. So um, what we've just done, and we've done it twice now, is we've done how is Jesus, how does Jesus fulfill this picture, right? So like there's this picture that's that's formed here in this story. Right. Um, but there's other ways that we could have talked about this with the same categories we set up. So that this is like the 
the the allegory. That I would call that more of an allegorical application, but in a good right. way. Allegory okay. has become a byword, especially in theological circles, where if it's allegory, it's bad. But even Paul used the word allegory in the New Testament in Galatians. Okay. Um, uh, but there's another and, way to do and this. And allegory simply would like you're you're saying like this is a picture of that of that. That's allegory. Okay. Right. And so, but another way to get the, to get here is also going through redemptive history. Right. So like, what happened here? And how did it have ramifications through the storyline of the Bible that ultimately gets us to Jesus, right? And it's like, um, you know, this is, God always had prophets and representatives throughout the course of history. And over and over again, whether it was Elisha or Jeremiah or Isaiah or Hosea, they were constantly rejected by God's people. And when Jesus came, he was this new prophet. And what was on his lips? He said, you, you and your fathers rejected all the prophets up to me, and you're going to reject me as well. Yeah. And yet in the final rejection of the final prophet of God, we have um, an like a, a solution to all the rejection, right. a blessing when all there was was a curse, and like so. There's other ways to do it where it's not just a picture, but you can trace the storyline of yeah. the Bible. And so I think that's also helpful. Um, and then there's also like you could do theological categories, right? So it's like blessing and curse. So you have like he called down a curse on them, you know. And it's like and so you can talk about well, what's a curse of what's the curse of God? Well, we know about that from the fall from the plagues of Egypt, from um, Leviticus and the blessings of cursing for following the law or not, and right. as well as Deuteronomy. Yeah. And, uh, and now apparently there is a prophet of God who can just speak and a curse is promised and it comes. So again, the more, the more you've read, the more you have categories right. uh, across the canon of scripture right. for how you can appreciate yep. those different things. Okay, that's, that's, that's helpful. Right. Um, all right, let me, let me throw something else uh, at you. This is one where like for me, I was, uh, I was in one of those seasons where I, I had like fallen off on my schedule with daily Bible reading mm-hmm. and spending time in the Word. And so I did one of those classic, uh, it was the 16th day of the month, so I'm going to Proverbs. Uh, you know, have you Oh, have yeah, you Proverbs that? Yeah. 16. Right, yeah. right, right. Or then, and then I also do like Psalms 16, okay. and then you add 30. Uh, is it 30? Yeah, you add 30 five times, and you also read through the, so you'll read five Psalms a day. Based uh, on the calendar, right, 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 and you'll read the whole Psalms in a month too. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I think it was, uh, I think it was Billy Graham, um, Billy Graham, who famously, like, you know, among others, did that and yep. said, and said that the reading Proverbs every month helped him to deal with people, and reading Psalms every month helped him to deal with God. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> of of in his relationships. Anyway, so I I, I pulled up Proverbs sixteen, okay. and uh, and I. Um, I started reading, and and so I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this. I'm gonna tell you what I was processing, and I want you to help work me through like how how responsible of a of a okay you know for me. So you you do the you do the application this time, and I ask the questions. Is that the deal? Kind of, yeah. Okay. I, like I I read I'll read I'll read and I'll tell you what I saw in it. Okay. In terms of encountering Jesus in this, right. in Proverbs 16. Let's do it. So in the midst of reading, I get to verses five through seven. This is, this is a ESV uh, 5 through 7 of Proverbs 16. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So in the midst of reading the whole chapter, mm. I read those, and I'm like, uh, for me, I was like, there's, there's the gospel mm-hmm. in Proverbs 16. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognized myself as one who is arrogant in heart. 
who, uh, and actually per, for me personally, pride really is something that I daily wrestle with. Yes. Um, and recognize that the text is telling me that in me is an abomination to the Lord. Mm. Uh, and not just not just the sin, everyone who is arrogant. So I am, that like, like my, I as a prideful person, I'm an abomination to the Lord. And I should be assured that's not going to go unpunished. Mm-hmm. Um, the next verse all of a sudden makes this very pleasant turn. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And I looked at that and I thought, um, it's not my steadfast love and it's not my faithfulness. No, n- you know, nothing I'm going to do will atone for uh, and can atone for what I have done um, because I'm still going to fall back into my pride. Um, but it is, it is the steadfast love of Jesus. It is his faithfulness, uh, and he's the one who has atoned for my iniquity. He's the one who demonstrated the fear of the Lord and has has he he first turned away from evil mm-hmm. in his obedience, but also is in the process of turning my heart from evil, mm-hmm. of making me humble. Uh, and the last verse, uh, verse seven: When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And again, I thought, I'm not the one who who's who's pleased the Lord. It's it's Jesus. And he has made me, I was, like Philippians 3 says, an enemy of the cross. Mm-hmm. And now, like Ephesians <laughs> said, I've, I've experienced peace yeah. with God. And so I'm just reading that. And again, it's like Proverbs is one of those that's kind of like a, it's like a old, an Israelite Twitter feed, just yeah. all these different little <laughs> wisdom quips and things. I like that. And so I'm just reading, and I read those three verses, and that was my gospel moment mm-hmm. in Proverbs 16. Um, so... You know, at at the risk of making you the gospel police, yeah, d- like, uh, <laughs> like, of what I just did, is there any of that that you'd be like, well, just curb it on that, or be careful, whatever? No, I think it's great. I think it's I think it's fantastic. I think um, I think the I think the fun thing to do would would be to to have you do this, which is oh boy, read it like a legalist. Read it the wrong way for me. So because you made some assumptions there that I I could push back on. So like. Um, so chapter or verse six, right? Okay. It says by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. He's talking to me, right? Yeah. Like, how am I going to turn away from evil? Yeah. Fear, fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs says, That's right? Okay. So then how am I going to atone for my iniquity earned by my arrogant heart? Well, I've got to have steadfast love, love and faithfulness. faithfulness. I've got to be, I need to atone for, I this. need to atone for this. And it's like, yeah. and, and and how am I going to stop doing things I need to atone for? Oh, I, I need to have more fear of the Lord. Uh-huh. So right. those, those, those three things, if I can manage right. those. So I'm like, how did you get to Jesus then? This seems to be like it's about me. Uh, well, I, I guess, again, I'm walking in with an assumption exactly that right. I'm going to meet Jesus exactly there. Right. And I'm walking in with the assumption that not only am I, am I seeking to meet Jesus, the reason I'm seeking to meet Jesus is because the foundation of my faith is in him, mm-hmm. is in his righteousness, right. in his uh, and again, I've read, I've read the New Testament, right? And in the New Testament, I have you know who your atonement is. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have categories for the perfect sacrifice for the one who knew no sin, who became sin, right. so that we might become the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I know where I'm putting my hope. I know right. that if I put anything in myself, Ephesians three, I've already referenced it, but that that says like any anything else that I would trust in is refuse. It's right. it's a mess. It's not. It's, it's garbage. So like. You know you're not going to be the one to do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. That's okay, it. Okay, so here's the other thing to do then. Okay. Okay, so we read this as first off as legalists. Right. I'm like, well, that can't be right. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's, that's And then awful. we go, I know where this is supposed to take me. Right. And I and you even, I would say, did a really responsible Jesus turn. 
what's missing is the middle part where we go, but what is this text originally communicating? Because mm. it's not originally talking explicitly about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because he wouldn't come for thousands of years. Right. Okay, so then what's it, what's it talking about first? Well, like when we talk about like the steadfast love of God or like this, oh, we, this, this word steadfast love is a hyperlink to like the covenants of God. It's the Hebrew word chesed, right. which is a really popular word. It, people get it tattooed on them, you know, <laughs> and like the steadfast love, like when, when the Bible talks about steadfast love, it is almost always talking about God. So we should already be cued into the fact ah. that this is a covenantal term being talked about here. Uh, and then when it's paired with chesed and faithfulness, well, we're talking about God. And then, but then how do those things go together? Like, because I've got this arrogant abomination of a heart, right? right. And it needs to, it needs atone it needs to be atoned for. And so God is going to have this covenantal promised love that's going to be extended to me because of His characteristic, which is faithfulness. But then, how is He going to be faithful to me through His covenant? Mm. He's going to make atonement. Well, now I can participate because the atonement system I'm a part of. Right. I take my atoning sacrifice to the temple. So whenever I'm a proud fool and I have been arrogant towards God and I've been an abomination, I'm not cut off. I know that the hesed of God, the steadfast love of God is still there because he is faithful and he will let me come back to his temple with my atoning sacrifice and draw near to him again. And when I'm there, what overcomes me? Fear of the Lord. And like when I walk away from that temple after making my sacrifice and seeing that should have been me, and yet it's not, and I walk away clean and scot-free and not only no longer under the punishment, but made pure because of this sacrifice, I fear God and I don't want evil anymore because I've been forgiven. Mm. And it's like all of this is done for us in Jesus. And so now what this, what th- doing that step allows us to do right. is talk about everything you talked about in more specific terms. That's helpful because even you're helping me understand that what I wouldn't, what I didn't see until today is Proverbs 16, 5, 5 and 6 especially, uh, like this is good news yes. for the Israelite who would have heard it yes. in the day. It's got to be good news for them first. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Man, that, yeah. Like yeah. I'm, I'm even just like like working through that and, and thinking like, man, I, you know, I hadn't, hadn't thought about it that way. Right. And that's um, why that first step is so important right. to not only responsible allegory and a responsible Jesus turns and seeing Jesus in all of the scripture, right. but because... If we just skip that step and be like, oh, Jesus is our atonement, we miss the nuance of the whole counsel of Scripture. Yeah. Because there are a multiplicity of ways that the Bible um, puts things that allow, if we sit in it and meditate on it, that we're able to see Jesus differently. Mm. And like we can see him as, I think it's Tim Keller talks about, like as a multi prismatic view that every time you turn the prism of the Bible and the light of Jesus comes through it, it refracts in a different way. Right. And so like the more we engage with the nuances of the actual text of scripture and what it means in itself, we get to see the light of Jesus in a new, beautiful way. That is really cool. I think the other thing that, that I think is worth, and you can push back on it, but I think it's also worth noting is like it, what, where I was getting was, was still good, but where you got me was better. And and I don't and I and I don't just mean in quality. I mean in my appreciation now for this text. Mm. But it required a level of study mm-hmm. for you to go. Ah, I've got the hyperlink, which I right. would I, like. It, it would have taken. I need to go open a commentary. Right. I need to go X Y Z to to get to the the yep. hyperlink of of the Hesed and the faithfulness. And so here's yep. what here's what I'm saying. I'm not I'm not doing that as a cop out. What I'm doing is all 
what I think is worth saying is this is part of the benefit of responsible pastoral teaching, mm-hmm. leaders inside of church, and organizations like Spoken Gospel who mm-hmm. are doing this work to go, hey, there's some of these things that from a textual standpoint, this is helpful to continue this journey. It's not, you don't you, you can do a, a lot of this on your own. Right. And you could have gotten there on your own Definitely. with some study. And Even some, without a Hebrew guy. And some, and some if persistence. You, if you've been reading your Torah, you'd be like, steadfast love, I know that word. Right, right. That's, and that's connected to God yeah. in the, the covenants the, the interpre- over and over and over The interpreters again. of different versions of the Bible help us with that by right. translating keywords like that consistently. Right. So that's why the word steadfast love is always the placeholder for Hesed. Yeah. Yeah. But it still makes a it still makes a big impact to, you know, if you're a player, you you benefit from a coach. You know what yes, I mean? That's absolutely. all that's all I'm saying. That's and good. so that's yep. that's that's what I think is yeah. really great about your guys's ministry, but also uh, like this is what for you listeners out there, part of a local body, like this is what we benefit from from other brothers and sisters mm-hmm. in Christ. Yep. Who who continue to to turn that diamond for us and right. see the light reflect refract good, more. And just and that's why also like why we feel a burden at Spoken Gospel to make sure we're reaching out to pastors and teachers and even universities, college professors. Yeah. And being like, are are we training people to do this well? And um and we hope to have that kind of influence. So that kind of gets behind the curtain of our mission a little bit. But um, yeah, that's, yeah awesome. that's that's really cool. Uh, okay, I I, I want to take over real quick. All right, and say let me give you guys uh, a tool, a little quick toolkit to help you do some of this because it can feel overwhelming when you come to a text and you're like, okay, let me do this, and you're like, what does it mean? I don't know. I give up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but there is uh, this awesome little rubric that um, a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt um, helped innovate. And, who's uh, been on the, co- on who's the, pod- been on the podcast. podcast. Yep. He did our introduction to Psalms. Yeah, so if you haven't great. listened to that, go back. He's amazing. I love Jeff. Um, and he came up with this little rubric that I find extremely helpful. And um, so this is, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's proprietary, but it's definitely with, originated with him or he might point you to where he got it. I don't know. I got it from Jeff. So that's all the citation I need to do. Yeah. And it's good stuff. Yeah. So um, there are, and if you are at a place where you can write this down, do it. uh, But uh, it's five steps, five questions that you walk through in every text to help you not only get to Jesus, but to responsibly apply it to yourself, which is kind of what we talked about, uh, I think, on your interview when we were yeah. talking about application. And, um, and so anyway, so here, here they are. So you come to a text, you ask these five questions. First is, who is God? That's the first question you ask, which when, when we do that, it, it's not the first question we normally ask of a text. It's true. We usually ask, like, what does this mean or what does this mean for me? You know, what's going on? You know, and it's like, who is God? Like, how do I see God in this? Because we have to believe that the Bible is preeminently about its author. (laughs) You know, like this is a book about God. It's meant to show us him, which is what you were talking about in your story with you you learn to seek revelation over application. Right, right, right. How is this really? So, okay, okay. For for one of the texts we've already touched, Exodus 17, the the, the battle with Moses' arms raised up. Who is God? Right. Oh, I want to do a different one. Oh, okay, fair enough. I just want to do an easier one. All right. So let's let's just do a Ten Commandment. All right. Let's do... Uh, love your or or uh, obey your father and mother. Okay, right or honor. Honor is the word, right? Honor. Honor your father and mother. Okay, one of the things because it's just short. Right. So there's sweet a command. So if we begin with who is God? Right. Because especially in a command, honor your father and mother. The first thing you're going to think of is okay, do that. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, but no, the first thing we need to think of is who is God? Okay. Well, who is God when I when I hear honor your father and mother? He's a father. Right. He's the consummate father. Uh, and he's the father deserving of all honor, 
Uh, and so like we can kind of start wrestling with some of those ideas. So who's got, uh, he's a father deserving of honor. Okay. Cool. Okay. The second question we ask is um, what has he done? So who is God? What has he done? And this is uh, the Christ question. So the first question is theological. Who is God? The second question is Christological. What has he done? Okay. In Christ. So honor your father and mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've got we've got God, yeah, God as the, as a father deserving of honor. That's right. So what has he done? Mm-hmm. I mean, did did Jesus honor his father? Yes. Yeah. In John, he says, "I only ever do what I see my father doing." That's right. Right. And uh, he he honored his father uh, by obeying him. Yeah. Even into the hardest places. Right the cross glorify your son that your son may glorify you yeah okay like so like he definitely honored his father um and he honored him in ways that we just don't you know and then uh so so who is god um what has he done in christ uh three what does uh so uh who does that make us to be or what does that say about us or who am i because of this okay there's different ways based on the answer that you can ask that question okay and this is the uh jeff calls it the ecclesiological <laughs> question uh which is like the study of the church like so what does that make us the as churchy a church question uh but, <laughs> but i like I, I just call this the identity question that's helpful yeah it's like so who am i because of this well uh when i would originally read the honor your father and mother passage i would say i'm not I'm not someone who honors his father and mother always. Right. I've not done this perfectly. Um, in fact, I've constantly broken this this law. Um, but if I look back at who God is, he is the father deserving of all honor, who I, who I have dishonored. Mm. You know, not only have I dishonored my earthly parents, I've also dishonored my heavenly father. Right. Um, but Jesus has honored him perfectly and has taken the curse promised for those who dishonor their parents, because there's a curse attached to these laws. Uh, the, the the first, the, the 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 honor your father and mother is the first of the Ten Commandments that comes with a blessing, right? right. Uh, honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you, and you will live long in the land. Yeah, and Paul quotes that in Ephesians. He does. Okay. Uh, conversely, what happens if you break the law? Your life will be short, and you'll be <laughs> driven out from the land. Right. And so, what do I deserve for dishonoring my father and mother and my heavenly father? I deserve to be dead. I deserve death and to be cut off from God, separated from his presence. Right. And yet, because Jesus honored his father perfectly, I am brought in. And now what am I? Uh, now what am I? What's my identity now? I'm a son yeah. who is seen as someone who has perfectly honored his father. And I'm brought in and I have a new dad. Yeah. And I have a new brother, Jesus. And like I'm brought into this new family right. and I'm a co-heir and I'm yeah. adopted. And oh my gosh, like all this identity stuff you can start meditating on. And then finally, we get to question four. What do I do? Now, especially with commands, that's the one we want to jump to right away. Yeah. Which, honor your father and mother. What, what do you do? Honor your father and mother. Right. <laughs> right. 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 And so, but it's, it's pure like, application, right? Pure application. But until we go through the first three, we're not going to have the juice, the gas necessary to drive <laughs> that car of application. Right. Right. We're not going to be able to carry out that command on our own strength. Yeah. But when we see that God is the God worthy of all honor, when we see that Jesus has come and perfectly obeyed the Father and took the curse that we deserved, when we see that even though we dishonored our Heavenly Father, we have been brought into the family of God and have been made adopted sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ, then whenever we, we say like, honor your father and mother, it's like, well, I don't care who they are or what they've done. Of course I can honor them because look at what Jesus has made me. 
Like, look at what he's done for me. Of course I can go and love and honor my father and mother, no matter how messed up they might be, yeah. right? Yeah. Because ultimately I'm aiming at my heavenly father. I'm honoring him because of everything he's done for me in Christ. Right. And then the fifth question is one that I can't answer for you. And this is the question of how do you do it? Ah. And that's the, the question of contextualization. Because, yeah, because that looks very different. It looks very different. different. So, different like, to, are you adopted? Yeah. That looks very different than if you have a, a still married nuclear family. Yeah. Are your parents still alive? Are your parents still alive? Right. Um, it, was your father abusive and is now in prison? Mm. How do you honor him? Wow. Uh, you know, is, you know, is he an alcoholic? Like all, that's a contextual question. And that's where meditation and prayer come in. And you've got to figure out what that looks like for you in your context. And that's also, I mean, I would almost, contextual question is a good way to call it. I would also say that that, that's a contextual question that demands a spirit-led answer. Definitely. That that that's part of how we're led into this active relationship mm-hmm. with God present in us yes. to lead us into a gospel-centered way of life. Right. Um, that comes from the foundation of who God is and what has He done in Christ and what Christ has done and who, who? He's made us to be. Mm-hmm. And now obedience, knowing the principle of it, will now like the spirit leads me into the specifics of it. That's really right. Yep, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And so like so, let me lay it out one last time here. So uh, who is God? question of theology uh what has he done the question the question of christology uh uh, who has that made me to be the question of identity number four uh what do i do the question of uh missiology i didn't say that one the mission what do i do with it uh and then five uh how do i do it which is the question of contextualization so that's a fun little like a really helpful rubric yeah and really simple really simple and and so i would just encourage you to like the next time you read your bible Find a small section and just run through that meditatively and go, hey, who is God? And pray. Show me your, yourself, God. Okay, how has Jesus done something with, with this picture of God in mind? And then, now, and then I would really encourage you to meditate on what does that mean for you? Like, who has Jesus made you to be because of what he has done? Yeah. Apply the gospel to your heart. And then when you get to the application, you'll be like, of course I want to do that. Um, and so anyway, uh, I think that's a really fun rubric that, um, that Jeff Vanderstelt um, has kind of walked a lot of people through. And it's been really helpful for me. Um, so I hope you guys find that helpful. Yeah, um, that's awesome. It's, it's not necessarily correlated like perfectly with uh, doing gospel turns in Scripture, but I think it's a very helpful biblical interpretation tool. Yep. Yeah, awesome. So I, I, I think that's a great place to end. And I just want to say that for these three episodes, it's been so much fun to get to be with you. And thanks for everybody who's joined us for these. I can't wait for Seth to get back in. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and Deuteronomy's and next. Oh, man, it's going to be good. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So thank you guys for listening. Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'll have to get you back on. I, need, I want you and Seth on at the same time. That would be a blast. Uh, and so we'll, we'll try to get that get that going. Uh, but guys, thank you for, for listening to these. It's been a really fun diversion and like a different uh a different kind of track for us on spoken gospel but we'll get back to the basics and picking apart texts uh next week with deuteronomy so uh until then uh we we hope you go read your bible and ask who's god who's jesus what's he made you to, to be how how do you live that out and uh we hope you have fun with that so thank you for listening and we'll see you next week Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit dedicated to creating free gospel-centered media that speaks the gospel out of every corner of scripture. So to join us in our mission and view our resources, we invite you to visit spokengospel.com.